And we're going to start with verse 20, or 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. <laughs> May God bless the reading of his word. So, yeah, um, I've come to the conclusion genealogies are the hardest thing to write a sermon on. <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> and look at Mike, he's all like, ooh, now I'm intrigued. The, yeah, Abraham, Abraham met Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, we could do that. But, no, I got what God provided. Um, at least I hope so. <laughs> but we'll see how it goes. Um, let's go ahead. We'll dive in. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Before we delve too deep, deeply into the genealogy, I thought it would be a good idea to discuss the two different kinds of genealogies that we find usually in the Old Testament. The first is what scholars call a segmented genealogy. Uh, these gen- genealogies focus on the ethnic relationship between families, clans, tribes, nations. Uh, the goal is to show the common ancestor from which all of these originated. A good example of this is the genealogy in Genesis 10, which is often called the Table of Nations. In that gen- genealogy, it starts with Noah and his sons, and then it shows the nations which originated from him, from him and his sons. Now, the second form of genealogy is found in the Old Testament is a linear genealogy. This kind of genealogy begins with one individual and ends with another individual. Scholars recognize that these tend to legitimize individuals. For example, the genealogies in Ezra and Nehemiah, we find them legitimizing the priests and the royal household. Those genealogies established the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's time so that they could fulfill the certain offices which would require of them. Um, Of these two kinds of genealogies, the one listed here is a linear genealogy. It begins with Perez and ends with David. In this way, it is meant to establish David and places a great amount of emphasis on him. Likewise, as we consider the genealogy, we need to remember that there was a common phenomenon with ancient cultures to have gaps in their genealogies. By gaps, it means that there were, for some reason or another, individuals who are technically missing from the genealogies. This does not mean that other genealogies did not have them during the time period. So, like this genealogy probably got all of its information from a genealogy which had the whole list of people. Um, Instead, it reflects that the focus of certain individuals for these particular genealogies, including some of the ones found in the scriptures. What we should remember, though, is that there was more information, again, about these genealogies accessible to those who were writing these, um, and which is not accessible, unfortunately for us, thousands of years later. This also does not mean that the genealogies within the scriptures are false. They still provide truth in regards to the family line which they represent. For example, it may not be that one of the individuals on the list was the son of so-and-so, but they were the grandson of so-and-so. Or to put it more simply, if they were to do my genealogy, they might put Richard, the father of Fred, Fred, the father of Benjamin. Now, Fred is my dad, not Ben's dad. And so we see my name being skipped, yet we notice that that does not deny the familial relationship between Ben and Fred as there is a direct line from one to the other. 
Um, for these past cultures, for some reason, again, certain genealogies did this, and for them describing descendants in this way was not unusual, though for us it might be. So I just wanted to bring that up. When we look at these genealogies, there are a few names missing. We see it in Matthew 2. Why? We'd have to have a time machine and go back and ask. But it doesn't mean that they're not true. So, with this in mind, we notice the first phrase is, these are the generations of Perez. One wonders why the author decided to start with Perez rather than Judah. After all, it was Judah who was promised a scepter to rule in Genesis 49, 8-12. Regardless, it likely reflects the reality that Perez was an important individual clan for the tribe of Judah, something we have discussed previously. Perez, as we remember, is the son of Judah and Tamar. Apart from this, we can only be sure that his clan became a dominant clan within the tribe of Judah. It was from Perez, actually, that we see this genealogy from which Boaz was a descent. We also learn that Perez fathered Hezron. There is little information about Hezron other than that he migrated with Jacob when he went to Egypt. Apart from this, we have no other information. Now, this leads us to the next names on the list. 19. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. We now learn that Hezron fathered Ram. Like his father, there is little about Ram mentioned within the Old Testament. We just know that he did, in fact, exist. His descendants, however, were both rather famous. First is Aminadab, whose name means, My kinsman is generous or noble. Along with this name, we also find out that he was the father-in-law of Moses' brother Aaron, the high priest, according to Exodus 6.23. Because of this, Aminadab was a well-known individual. Now, verse 20. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. It is now that we learn of Aminadab's son, Nashan. Nashan is an important figure in the Old Testament, which may surprise some who probably have no idea who he is. Do you guys, anyone know who Nashan is? Yeah, <laughs> I got you. Got no idea who he, I know. I hey, I'll be honest. I didn't know much about him either until this. Um, before we get into this, though, we recognize his name means little serpent. Likewise, we learn from the previous point that he was then the brother-in-law of Aaron. Along with this, we also learn other interesting tidbits within the histories. In Numbers and during the time of the Exodus, we find him to be the tribal chief of Judah. We learn of this when he was selected to help Moses with a census in Numbers. We also find him to be the first tribal leader to present an offering during the dedication of the tabernacle. And because of this, most scholars recognize this to be an indication that he had a high social standing. Finally, when the tribe of Judah led Israel to the promised land during the desert times, it was Nashan who was at their head. As we can see, Nashan was a significant figure during the time of the Exodus. Most scholars find this to be the reason for him being placed in the important fifth spot in the genealogy. They recognize that the fifth spot in such genealogies often have important figures in the ancient world, though not as important as the seventh spot, as we will soon see, or the final person on the list, as we'll see later. So it was that Nashan fathered Salmon. At this point, we come across the possibility of a jump in the genealogical list. It is more likely that Nashan was actually the grandfather of Salmon rather than his actual father. As we have seen, such jumps in genealogies were common practice, especially when said genealogy was focusing on the numbers and their significance in the ancient world. Apart from this, 
We have little information about Salmon other than the fact that he married an important woman, and that important woman was the prestigious Rahab. Rahab, as we may remember, was the woman in Jericho who hid the spies while they were scouting the city, and because of this, she was spared from the destruction of Jericho. Her importance in early Judaism, that is, in Judaism around the first century when Christ was born, is well known, and is even well known within Christianity as well, as she holds a prominent place not only in the genealogy of Christ, but also in the book of Hebrews, where she is mentioned in the Heroes of Faith chapter, which is interesting to consider since Joshua who was one of her contemporaries, is not mentioned at all. Um, this is not a slight against Joshua, as it is her importance during the time period. It just recognizes that importance. Now verse 21. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. At this point we come to the seventh name on the list and the second most important person behind David. We have already spent a great deal of time looking at Boaz, uh, his character, his worth, and there is not much more we can discuss concerning the man. One would imagine, however, that having Rahab in his family history might cause one to stop and consider his relationship to Ruth. Is it possible that Boaz can see God's grace so easily with Ruth because his mother or his grandmother um, is Rahab, who, like Ruth, was blessed by God despite being an outsider? One would imagine that would have some kind of impact on his view of Ruth and God, um, though we can't be 100% certain, to me it makes sense. Reflecting on a previous point, we do see how Boaz is seventh name on the list. The seventh name on the list of ancient genealogies was often held for a person of high esteem. A good example of this is in Genesis 5, where the seventh name on the list is Enoch. What we know of Enoch, according to the text, is that he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What this means has led to so much speculation for thousands of years that we can't even begin to get into it. Um, and it caused Enoch, though, to become a mythological figure, especially around the first century. Uh, and regardless, this simply affirms that Boaz holds an important place in the, in the genealogy presented to us in Ruth. As we know from last week's text, Boaz married Ruth, and together they had Obed. Apart from this, little is known of Obed, Yet this does not negate his significance. Now verse 22, the final verse. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. From here we learn that Obed eventually married someone unknown to us, and from that marriage had Jesse. Jesse was the one whom the prophet and judge Samuel came to appoint one of his sons to be king. It is interesting to notice how we are told Jesse has eight sons. Last week we learned how the women in Bethlehem all praised Ruth, claiming that she was worth more to Naomi than seven sons. As we saw last week, seven sons was the ideal family. As it turns out, Jesse, a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, had more than the ideal family, and may be another way for us to recognize the blessed line that stems from Boaz and Ruth. Regardless, this does not end with Jesse. Instead, it ends with the greatest descendant, which is David. David, as we all know, was the son whom Samuel anointed to become king over all of Israel. His faith and devotion to God in his life is seldom paralleled in the Old Testament. He was, by all accounts, the greatest king of Israel. Despite his own failings, we see an individual who relied on God and gave God his faith and his obedience. It is from this we conclude the book of Ruth. 
Now, before we get to the main point, I did want to offer two quotes from uh, the commentators who have helped us along the journey of Ruth. And the first one comes from Bloch. This book and this genealogy demonstrates that in the dark days of the judges, the chosen line is preserved not by heroic exploits, by deliverers or kings, but by the good hand of God, who rewards good people with a fullness beyond all imagination. These characters could not know what long-range fruit their compassionate and loyal conduct toward each other would bear. But the narrator knows... With this genealogy, he declares the faithfulness of God in preserving the family that would bear the royal seed in troubled times and in rewarding the genuine godliness of his people. If only the rest of the nation had demonstrated such covenant faithfulness at the same time. In this genealogy, the names of Boaz and Obed are indeed proclaimed far beyond Bethlehem and Israel to the ends of the earth. Now the second quote comes from Um, Hubbard. As the book's concluding word, however, David sounded the triumphant of God's providence over the vicissitudes suffered by the names listed. Considering Judah's irresponsibility, the perilous intervening centuries, and Ruth's earlier infertility, that David was born at all simply attested the presence of that providence. Further, given Saul's cruel vengeance, David's ascent to power provided weightly corroborating evidence. God is indeed king. The main point of this genealogy is to conclude the book of Ruth. As the commentators note, we come through the generations during the hazardous times of the judges' era and by God's providence end up with King David giving affirmation along the way of David's ancestral lineage of worthy individuals, including a chief of the tribe of Judah during the Mosaic era. Likewise, the narrator ends where he begins. He began by declaring the name of Elimelech, which means God is king, and ends with the one whom God declared to be king over the people. It is at this we wonder in awe if only the narrator knew that one would come who would be even greater than David. That through this same line, God, who is king, would come in human flesh to break the bonds of hell and to usher in a new kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is king of all. Now this leads us to the application points. I know. <laughs> Again, how do you get applications out of a genealogy? Um, the f- they are fun. I think that they're very interesting, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. <laughs> right now. The first application point comes when we consider the genealogy itself. As we have gone through the members of the genealogy, it should cause us to consider the providence of God. We notice that almost half of the individuals on this list are living during the judge's period. This period was a dark, dark period, which the author of Judges ends up repeatedly saying, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a critique of the generations in the judges' period. Instead of seeking God, they sought whatever they desired. Yet even in the dark times of the judges' period, we see individuals who courageously stand out compared to the rest of those within the tribes. In particular, we see Boaz who, as was previously mentioned, holds the seventh spot in the genealogy. He has shown considerable worth in the book of Ruth, not just with how much hesed he shows individuals, but also his faith in God. 
When we go back further and we consider the Exodus generation, we also see Nashan, who was well known as a tribal leader of Judah. His reputation must have been high, otherwise it is doubtful he would have been leading Judah as he did, whether it be at the head of the pack when advancing in the desert or presenting an offering during the dedication of the tabernacle. In these individuals, we see considerable worth, and it ultimately leads us to the one with the greatest worth, which is David. The feats of David are so much that it's too vast for us to begin listing here. Instead, it will be sufficient to consider the covenant with which God made with David. In it, we are told, through David's line, God would establish an everlasting dynasty. Ultimately, this had its fruition in Jesus Christ, who was the heir of the dynasty, being a direct descendant of David. What do we clearly see in this genealogy? The hand of God providentially keeping the line intact through personal individuals. Each of the individuals on this list is personal in that they are unique. None of them are exactly alike. Instead, God used these specific people in order to continue the line of descent from Paris to David and ultimately to Christ. So that is the first thing to consider. Each individual is important for the whole to take place. This reminds us of the reality for all of us as well. We are all unique individuals who are used by God for his glory. You are a personal witness to the importance of personality. Many individuals think, oh, if I had been born to this family, then my life would be better. Or if I had been born this way, maybe I could be a star athlete. Or if I had been born this way, I could look more beautiful and people would find me attractive. The problem with this is that you would then no longer be you. You would be living a completely different life. You would be a completely different person. Yet God wanted you to exist exactly as you are. Your personality, which is absolutely unique in itself, has a cause and is important to God. One can imagine how much of a revolution might take place among our youth who began to look at themselves in this way, rather than the way that the world would have them look at themselves. Yet the greatest part of our worth is not just in personality. Our personality points to something even greater within humanity, and that is how we are created in the image of God. Because God is personal, so we are. It is part of our uniqueness as created beings to be made in his image, and that that does not exclude any individual on the planet. We all have this imprinted on us. You then, are not here by blind chance. You are here for the same reason Obed came to Ruth and Boaz. The reason? The providence of God. God created you in his image to seek out his glory through his son, Jesus Christ. Yes, we are all tainted by sin. Yes, morally, we are all corrupt. And because of that, we are worthless from a moral perspective. Yet from a craftsman perspective, we have great intrinsic value, great intrinsic worth being made in the image of God. That is the point I thought we should get from the genealogy. Just as all these individuals were necessary for the line to continue, so you are necessary for your line to continue. Just as these individuals were placed where they were by the hand of providence, so we are placed where we are by the hand of providence. Your worth is great as a created being made in the image of God. Let's not forget that about each other. And let it cause us to desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. For each individual is crafted beautifully.
And to see such beauty tainted by sin should grieve our hearts and cause us to desire the salvation of all men through Christ. Now, this leads us to our second point, the shoulders on which we stand. Anytime I preach on a genealogy, I can't help coming back to this theme. I know some of you are wondering how many times I've preached on a genealogy. Well, the truth is only once, and that was in Matthew. But that does not negate that for some reason a genealogy causes me to reflect on the important issue of the shoulders on which we stand. In other words, those who have come before us, who have shaped us, whether knowingly or unknowingly. It's with this that I consider not only those who have come before us via our families. As we can see from the genealogy, this is important. Families are pivotal in the scriptures and should continue to remain pivotal in our own times. The family union, unit is where our foundations are laid, and it is our responsibility to our families to help lay a strong foundation on Christ. But along with this comes the church. It is all too common a theme among many congregations to neglect church history. Many tend to have this view that the first century church happened and everything was great, but then as soon as that generation died out, everything became corrupted until we came along and fixed it. Well, that's kind of arrogant, (laughs) if you ask me. I mean, 2,000 years of church history, and we tend to think that God couldn't preserve something? That God could allow it to continue for so long, completely and utterly broken? That's preposterous. Indeed, we should remember that the shoulders on which we stand... Many in our congregations have very little concept of church history. When we mention names like Clement, Polycarp, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Jerome, most individuals just have no recognition. There are a few of the early Christians who we do know well, and that is Augustine, for example, but besides that, there aren't too many known to us today. Yet it is on their very shoulders on which the church stands. Most don't recognize that Tertullian, for example, was the first one to coin the term Trinity when describing God. No one had done it before him. Now, if we ask people within our congregations if they believe in the Trinity, they would give an affirmative, hopefully. Not realizing that God used Tertullian to help us understand who he was or who he is. If we jump about a thousand years after the guys just mentioned, we come to the Reformation. More of the individuals um, we might mention here are well known for the most part. If we mention names like John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, William Farrell, Philip Melanchthon, John Calvin, and John Knox. Usually, most will know Martin Luther and maybe John Calvin. Yet most don't realize how significant each of these individuals are for the church. Consider John Wycliffe. He was the first to translate the Bible into English. Such terms as salt of the earth and city set on a hill are coined by him. He's the first one to ever say those words in the context. Most also do not know that to translate the Bible was considered a crime during the life of Wycliffe. He only managed to do it because he had protection from the king. Eventually, Wycliffe died of a stroke, and thereafter the Roman Catholic Church declared him to be a heretic where his body was exhumed, burned, and tossed into the river. Um, Most scholars, most also consider him to be the morning star of the Reformation, the first to really challenge the corruption in the church. Just to consider the timetable, he died in 1384. It would be more than 130 years until Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on Wittenberg's door in 1517. 
Again, these individuals are the shoulders on which we stand, and yet neither list is by any means exhaustive. I find it fascinating that these individuals would have been known, well known to our predecessors. Yet, when we ask many congregates about these individuals, they are left without much knowledge on them. To this, we need to change our church culture, to appreciate the shoulders on which we stand by learning about these individuals whom God has used to bring himself glory and encourage the church throughout the ages. Simply put, the church has failed to appreciate our own history. Instead, we've relegated it to the universities to be studied in ivory towers. Yet the, church, the truth is, this is all of our history, not just scholars or those studying for degrees. These individuals affect us all in some way. Their influence trickles down to us even now. These individuals are part of our genealogy. So instead of ignoring the past, I think it would be wise of us to restore it to embrace those who have gone before us who fought so hard and so many of whom died as martyrs defending the faith which we cling to today. Let that be the application for this. Our congregation does not have its beginning in the 1890s. It has its beginnings 2,000 years ago. And for 2,000 years, God has used individuals like us to build up his church to teach us more about himself. Let's not allow the future to forget about the past. Let's make our shoulders stronger by knowing the shoulders on which we stand to encourage those who come after us to remain faithful to the historic Christian faith which those who have come before us have proclaimed and continue to proclaim to us even now. These things should cause us to consider the gospel. The gospel is the foundation for the Christian faith. It is the gospel on which all of those who have come before us stood. It was the gospel for which the book of Ruth pointed us to when describing the descendants of Perez. All of the Old Testament led to Christ. And since Christ, we have a strong history to stand on. The gospel begins with our origins. God created all things by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to, be, to bear his image. Because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, and displays hesed, we can as well. It is here we find dignity, sanctity, and worth to human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience in life or choose to follow disobedience in sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. It is because of this our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. And it is because of this we continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous God. God did not leave us in this state forever. Instead, he sent his light and his word into our darkness, and that was Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is to him all the prophets point. It was by his sacrifice we find our redemption. Because of him, our relationships can begin to be reconciled. And because of his blood, our guilt before God is cast aside. His victory in life and over death becomes our victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to live a lifestyle which is congruent with the scriptures for the glory of God. 
We are not to live however we please, nor are we to live for self. Instead, we are to live for God and his holy name in adherence to the scriptures, walking in step with the Spirit. Second, we are to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We must recognize our dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we are able to do which saves us, but what Christ has done. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, um, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is only condemnation. None can stand before God with their deeds in hand, for sin has corrupted even their greatest deeds. Because of this, to stand before God apart from Christ is to stand worthy of all judgment because of sin. For those who are obedient, however, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they stand before God redeemed of their sins through Christ. Their lifestyles are no longer bound to sin, but to Christ. They become inheritors of an eternal kingdom, where they will experience the love of God and the peace of God forever. As we consider our history, let us never forget this gospel, which it is founded on. It is the gospel, this gospel, which was the foundation for the shoulders on which we stand. Let's not make our shoulders weak by following any other gospel. Instead, let's live by and proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ for all to hear and for future generations. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the shoulders who you have made strong so that we can stand on them. And Lord, we ask that you would make our shoulders strong for those who come after us, whether they be in the family or in the church, that they would be able to look back on us and say, there was a person of faith, there was a person I could understand, and there was a person that I could emulate as they followed Christ. Lord, we need to be strong individuals. We need to be people of faith, of love, of joy in you. And so, Lord, we ask that. Make our shoulders strong. And let us never forget those who have come before us. Because it is through them you continued on your word to us today. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, which is Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance
our song.